0: The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good morning. It's wonderful to uh, be here. Uh, Privileged to share this conference day with you. And thank you to Steve for such a warm welcome. what Steve didn't mention is that I flew in from uh, Toronto last night, uh, so I'm a little bit jet lagged, but that's not going to affect me today. I assure you. Uh, I've been—I grew up here in England. I grew up uh, in the southwest, actually, near Bath, uh, where my father was a pastor. Studied in Birmingham and in uh, Nottingham, and uh, later in uh, Sheffield, and. Uh, my wife and I lived initially in London, in Fulham, for about three years before I worked with uh, a man called Ravi Zacharias, in, uh, based in Oxford initially, and then moved to Canada uh, where I've been almost 15 years now. Um, I have three children, Naomi, Hannah, and Isaac. Naomi turned 15 uh, yesterday, um, and uh, they are all well and happy to let me come, I should add. Now we're just coming off the back, aren't we, of Easter weekend and the celebration of the resurrection of Christ. And that is significant in and of itself for a day like today because we're talking about the reign of Christ, the reign of God and what it means for us, its implications uh, for us. People often neglect to uh, unpack the significance of the resurrection. As Christians, I was was doing actually a a couple of interviews a week or so ago in which uh, we were discussing the the resurrection. And very often, even for us who have been involved in Christian apologetics, the resurrection, uh, its significance is limited, limited to oftentimes just a historical claim. We defend a historical fact. But people forget the significance of the resurrection of Christ, which leads on to his, if you look at the end of the Gospel of Mark, his ascension, and then his session, and his rule and his reign from the right hand of God. Actually, when you read the latter verses of Mark's Gospel, that's where it leaves the Lord Jesus Christ, in the place of reign and rule and authority. Now, in this uh, day we've got together today, in these four sessions, obviously, it's only really a primer. I can't say uh, all that much about the four subjects I've been assigned in um, 40 minutes each with some time for questions. So it is a primer today, and I'm noticing a lot of young people here, which is great to see. And so as you as questions occur to you throughout the day, scribble them down, and at, uh, towards the end of each session, I will do my best to uh, respond. Now, in uh, session one, we're really thinking about the scope of the gospel, the significance of the gospel, the implications of the gospel, the breadth of the gospel. And then we will unpack some of those in three, really three sort of different covenantal institutions, the the family, the church, and then the wider world, the state uh, around us today. When we think then about the person of Christ and the scope of the gospel, we are often drawn to the simple claim that Jesus made simple in the form of words anyway, but massive in its scope. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Jesus didn't uh, tell us that uh, he had some truths to share with us. He didn't say that uh, he had some uh, insight, some particular wisdom about a particular subject matter or field of study. He didn't say that I am the greatest theologian who has ever lived and I'm going to unpack Uh, a series of theological concepts for you. He said that I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. That is, not isolated, discrete bits and pieces of truths, but rather he is the truth. Now, when we uh, think about that, not only does it not work very effectively in, in, in English, in grammar, to say I am the truth, I mean, you it's uh, for anybody else to say that would be ridiculous, right? We would consider them ridiculous. When we encounter this Christ in scripture, what we find is that he is the beginning and the end. He's not just the bit in the middle. He's the alpha. He's the omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the firstborn of overall creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. He is The Word, he is the Logos. If you go to John's Gospel in the first chapter, he's the Word of God. So let's think about that Word of God just for a moment as we set today up. Uh, Open your Bibles if you have one, or if you must, scroll on your phone to uh, Colossians uh, chapter 1. And what it says there about the person of Christ. Colossians chapter 1, and we'll begin... Uh, in verse 13, Colossians 1, beginning at verse 13, speaking of Christ, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in him. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation for everything was created by him. In heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And by him, all things hold together or consist. He is also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place or preeminence in everything. For God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death, to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. One of the most striking things about Colossians 1 is the constant reference to all things, all things, all things, in heaven and in earth, visible, invisible, rulers, authorities, powers that through this word the word of God you know God's words are eloquent words um, but they're words of power so when God speaks things happen and God spoke and out of nothing creation was, it's not like the ancient Greeks who thought that there was this thing called independent substance being that then uh, some uh, divine, for want of a better word, activity formed and shaped and molded that substance into something, or it somehow just became something in and of itself, there is no independent substance. There is no independent being anywhere in the universe. There's the Creator, and then there's everything else that has been created. And God's words are words of power. You can't really separate, you see, out God's um, uh, spoken words um, and his actions. Because when God acts, he acts eloquently. And when he speaks, he speaks words of power that accomplish things. So what does scripture say? That when God sends forth his word, it must accomplish everything that he sent it out to do. His word cannot return to him void or empty. That's significant in itself. So this Word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, all things were made through Him, without Him, nothing was made that was made. And in Him was life, and that life was the light of men. So that's the Word. And that Word spoke all things into existence. He's the, He's the Alpha. And then Paul tells us in Colossians he's sustaining all things by the word of his power. In him all things consist. Everything holds together in him. So there is no independent law in the universe that holds things together where perhaps God just sort of began things. He kicked the ball at the beginning and now everything just goes on under its own power. And then maybe he'll interject here and there throughout history and wrap things up at the end. No, rather the scriptural view of this word, of this Christ, Is that in him everything holds together. It's by his powerful word that everything exists. You think for a moment about some of the miracles of Christ in his incarnation. Because that word, John tells us, by whom all things exist, by whom, through whom all things hold hold together, Paul says, doesn't he, in Romans 11, for of him And through him and to him are all things. All things. So that word is then incarnate. He's made flesh, that is. He becomes a human being in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, why would we be shocked in any way that that word who created all things and now comes after the fall, we'll come to that later, to redeem all things? to to restore all things back to right relationship with God. And so as Jesus goes about his ministry, what's he doing? He's preaching the good news. He's healing the sick. He changes, turns water to wine. He walks on the water. He raises the dead. People have never seen anything like this before. When Jesus stood at the grave of Lazarus, he'd been dead several days. And his Lazarus relative said, He stinks. You can't, you can't roll the stone away. Right? The body stinks. Now that means that Lazarus' brain had turned to liquid. Okay? His body was in, a, an, a, a, a going into that advanced state of decay. And Jesus, the incarnate word, the word made flesh, speaks the word, his word, and what happens? Lazarus is raised from death and walks out of the grave. All of his memories intact. Knowing exactly who he was. Now, that's a word of power. Okay, there's no independent substance at work there. There's no so-called law of nature that can account for anything like that. That is what we call laws are simply God's ordinary way of working. God has a law for creation. He has a law for creation. That means that when you walk out of this church after the conference today, you're not going to rock it up into space because there's a law called gravity. It holds you down here. There's a law for creation. But that is not a law for God. He's not bound by some independent law structure. It's His Word which creates all things, sustains all things, is incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ who manifests the power of that Word, And doesn't he say in John's gospel, I have power to lay down my life. I have power to take it up again. Nobody takes it from me. And that word of God surrenders himself in terms of the will of the father to death for our redemption. According to Paul in Colossians 1 here, it's through the blood of the cross. And then the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, who quickened his mortal body now lives and abides in us, in us because Christ was raised, ascended to heaven, is seated at the right hand of God and sends his spirit on his church. He's the Alpha, he's the Omega, but he also sustains everything in between. The resurrection of Jesus did not occur at the end of history. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. No, it happens right there in the middle of human history so that now we are the people of the resurrection and we are now working out as the people of the resurrection as the new humanity in Jesus Christ we are now working out the implications of that you know when death entered the world through sin at the beginning eternal death was not immediately pronounced on human beings was it I mean we're here we're here, aren't we? Death came, but it was not immediately pronounced on all human beings. There was a delay. And all the people that would follow after Adam, whom Christ would redeem to himself. And then came, comes Christ and his life and his resurrection, which we've just celebrated, and Life doesn't immediately, that life doesn't immediately burst forth into the earth, does it? And overwhelm everything. We don't see Christians springing out of their graves today. There's a delay again. Just as there was a delay in the full realization of eternal death, there's a delay in the full realization of the fullness of life. But We're here today because we believe that this Jesus Christ of Colossians 1 is living, he's real, If I had time to do some apologetics today, I would talk about how without this word, without this power, without this word of God, then there is in fact no meaning in anything. He's the source of all truth. He's the source of all meaning. And we must be, today is about really being gripped again as God's people by the power of that word, by the reality of that word by the joy of that word, by the glory of that word, which is Christ. And his power to transform our lives and to redeem all things and restore them back to the Father according to his promise. That's what today is really about. And the question that confronts believers in our time, in a very stark way, an increasingly stark way, is what is the relationship of this word revelation? The word revelation that spoke all things into existence. The word revelation that's republished here in scripture. What is the relationship of that word revelation to our life in the world? Is it just for gatherings like this when we're in church? Is it just for me in my personal life and my personal devotional life, my personal piety? Is it just for one aspect of my life, my moral, my ethical life? Or is this word, this transforming and uh, and powerful word, something that is for every aspect of life, for all of creation, for every human being? Is it simply a religious text, a religious word for the religious aspects of my life? Or is all of life religion? Is every aspect of life inescapably religious? Well, I hope you know what my answer is going to be today. We're here because we are called to a task. Right? The fact that Christ reigns, Christians are very good, you see, at drafting confessions and drafting formal statements of belief. You know, for example, Christians, evangelicals, will formally say that this is the infallible word of God, but then we don't apply it. So what we, what we, what we mean is that we, we believe in the formal authority of Scripture, but we don't believe in its material authority. That's like having a Haynes manual for your classic car And saying, this is the authoritative manual, but they're never consulting it when you're trying to fix the car and you're doing it all wrong. (laughs) It's no good having God's word available to us if we don't actually apply it. What is the relation then between the word revelation of God to our real life in the world? You know, how we answer that question as believers is going to determine the course of the future in this country. It's actually already been determining the course of the future. It's determined the course of the present. It's why the church today is where it is. Because we've not been answering this question adequately, or faithfully, or consistently. Let me talk for a moment then, having introduced us to this theme of the crisis which does face us. Some of you will have done some thinking about that. Some less thinking about it. My mum, who, my mum and dad, who were missionaries in Pakistan for about uh, 18 years, uh, live in my basement in Canada. It's not like an English cellar. A basement in Canada is like, you know, an apartment above, you know, with windows above ground. Okay? She's often saying, she's in her seventies now, that the world has gone mad. That people have gone crazy. Well, commenting on the life and thought of Nietzsche, G. K. Chesterton said, said this. He set forth, I think, a universal truth. He says the man who thinks without proper first principles goes mad. The man who thinks without proper first principles Goes mad. And that would seem to be an accurate description of the condition of our culture today. It's man's will, man's ideas that are permitted to rule and to determine truth, to determine justice, to determine righteousness, even at times in the church. And that means that purely human ideas are allowed to determine the direction of culture. The uh, Canadian philosopher George Grant, he understood the West's situation well. He said this, and I quote, listen closely, he says, justice is understood to be something strictly human, having nothing to do with obedience to any divine command or conformity to any pattern laid up in heaven. Moral principles, like all other social conventions, are made on earth. Human freedom requires that the principles of justice be the product of human agreement or consent. That is, they must be the result of a contract. And these principles must therefore be rooted in an understanding of the interests of human beings as individuals, rather than in any sense of duty or obligation to anything above humanity. The terms of the contract may well change as circumstances and interests change But the restraints free individuals accept must always be horizontal in character rather than vertical. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he's saying that no longer is relationship to God and a a transcendent word, directive. No longer is that relevant. Everything is purely horizontal. People can confer on themselves all manner of rights to do as they please because it's just a contract. In other words, let's take this group, this group of people we have in here today, let's say that we represent a a community, a city or a nation, and rather than recognizing any transcendent source as something above ourselves, of truth, of justice of meaning, any direction from above, we say well, we will determine that. Well, then there's a lot of us in here so who's going to determine it? So we say, well, let's work out a social contract. Let's agree together to certain conditions, certain ideas, and let's punish those who step outside of it. We'll just contract together. And that means that at different points along the way, we might update the contract. We might say, well, let's do this now, let's do that now. How many, how many's for that? How many's for this? And so today we have the contractual right to redefine our gender irrespective of creation or chromosomes I mean I I could bore you to tears with the most ludicrous stories you could possibly comprehend from Canada about people being taken seriously when they say when a 40 plus year old man with four children claims to be a 7 year old girl and is fostered as such that kind of insanity is called normal. We have the right to murder. Abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide. I mean, not here in Britain yet. We've got abortion. We don't yet have legalized assisted suicide and euthanasia. We do in Canada. The right to polygamy, to homosexual behavior, to bestiality, any predilection you choose, the right to suicide, in Belgium the right to euthanize children, the elderly, the sick, the right to homosexual marriage, to prostitution, pornography, the right to suppress worship of the living God, free speech of Christians, etc., etc., all dressed up in radical autonomy, human dignity. That's human dignity, apparently. So, I'm not going to analyze all of that. You know these things are happening. Okay, I could spend a whole session analyzing all of that. Few would deny that the, 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 the sand is shifting beneath our feet. The West's foundation is shifting. We have a pro- And in the midst of that, we have a profoundly compromised church. And liberalizers within those churches both evangelical, mainline, love to publish their apostasy, don't they? They love to advertise it to the whole world. And think that when they get social approval from the culture, that's God's approval. So understanding the nature of the relationship between the gospel and scripture, this glorious covenant that God has made, the everlasting covenant that he's made, And the culture around us has never been more important. Because no longer can we presume upon even a common understanding of the most basic things today. Things that my grandparents would have really think that you should be committed. To some kind of institution, if you believed them. We now are normalizing. People talk about you know, natural law and and um, two kingdoms and everybody agreeing on this uh, in the common kingdom. I can't get my neighbors to agree there's two genders. How am I going to get them to agree about any other norm? So to gain a proper understanding of the scope of the gospel and how it relates to the world around us, Let's think about this idea of culture. What is, what is culture? When we thought, when we think about our engagement with the world around us, what is culture? You know, culture is actually everything that human beings do in and with God's creation. That's simple enough, isn't it? Culture is, is everything, you know, you're sat on a piece of human culture. The Cultivating of natural resources so that you don't get a bad back today, or hopefully not depending on how good those Cultural artifacts are. But culture is everything we do. It's how we cultivate God's creation. It's what we do with the raw material of God's creation. That's why, in in, in a sense, we are vice-gerents. We're not even really vice-regents, because Christ is the regent. But we are vice-gerents. We are those that take what God has created, what has been spoken into existence, and then we, we shape it, we fashion it. As kinds of co creators. The English word culture and agriculture agriculture are derived from a Latin root and they're related to cultus worship. Think about that for a minute. We we, we have that ongoing association with worship still today, don't we? We talk about the cults the cults. You know, we think about the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and so on. Why do we call them cults? Cult, culture? Because cultus is worship. Perhaps the best definition of culture is that it is the public manifestation of the. Um, I'll borrow the, the expression of the, the great uh, Dutch philosopher Hermann Dooyeweerd. Uh, who, who talked about it's, it's the ground motive, it's the basic religious guiding idea, principle, ethos, that underlies all human thinking. Culture is the public manifestation of those most basic beliefs. It's a state of being that we cultivate through intellectual tilling. You know, agriculture is about tilling the ground, isn't it? Agri-culture, to, to grow things. So, cultures are created through intellectual tilling that goes on when you're in school and in your home. Your minds are being tilled and shaped when you, when you watch television, when you read, when you do whatever, you're looking at your, whatever pad it may be in front of you. Your mind is being tilled, being cultivated in terms of a particular direction. Moral tilling is going on. It's all done in terms of the prevailing cultus. And as that tilling happens, it forms a type of community, a type of civilization. That's why civilizations look different. You know, why is Europe not the crisis it has today? Why are we seeing all of this violence in Paris and even here in London? People driving over bridges in their cars, mowing people down. Well, we don't need a a tour of everything that's been going on in Europe. What's the problem? well it's cultus you know our, our uh, idiotic politicians for the most part think that it's to do with money disenfranchisement immigration no no it's fundamentally a religious issue it's a cultus issue it's a, it's what our most deeply held beliefs and now we're seeing cultures coming into conflict with each other. So, you know, why are, I know we've got children in the room, so I just, I need to be a bit cautious, careful about what I say. but Why are um, uh, people being assaulted in swimming pools in the West today by people from other cultures? It's because their religious convictions are different. It's because different types of tilling of the mind shape people in different ways. Cultus is always communitarian, and it's transmitted through the family, through education, through law, through art, through various different institutions. You can't actually ascertain that um, uh, the root of that culture from simply individuals. It's something that governs individuals even when they're not fully aware of it. And this is why so often the church finds itself in difficulty, because we're being shaped, dare I say at times Christians even being governed by a non-Christian cultus culture that's around them. And they're almost unaware of it. And until they actually see and hear something different, they don't realize how much they've been influenced and impacted and shaped. Because they think, well, the gospel just for this bit of my life, isn't it? Surely all of that is, that's neutral. Let me illustrate that practically for you. If you go to Saudi Arabia, or Pakistan, or Syria, you are going to experience Islamic culture. That is, it will be expressed in the education, in the law, in the dress, in the diet, in the, in the customs, and so forth. Islamic culture. Because culture is the public manifestation of our most deeply held beliefs. It's the public manifestation of religion. If you go to India, some of the major cities of India, you will still experience Hindu culture. And it's even there expressed in the surnames of people, which will indicate what caste you are, in terms of Hindu religion. If you go to North Korea or China, you're going to encounter Marxist-oriented cultures. If you're a traveler in Tibet, you're going to experience a Buddhist culture and so forth. If you come to the West today, what do you experience? What do you find? Well, I would argue that you find an essentially humanistic, secular culture. By the way, the very idea of secular is a that's not non religious, it's inherently religious. The secular is an idea that's drawn again from Greek thought, from Greek philosophy, um, that there are real there, there really is this realm of independence, an independent substance. And so we're constantly being told you know religion can't have any place here. As though secularism, which denies the creative, sustaining, redemptive word of God, as though it were non-religious. Well, it isn't. It's a thoroughly religious... In fact, the Humanist Manifesto too makes clear that it's a religious perspective. You find that, and we find a culture deeply influenced by all kinds of pagan spirituality with some of the vestiges of Christianity. Because our culture has been undergoing a seismic shift for a number of years now, and Christian truth has ceased to give clear direction to the historical development of our society and that's a very precarious place to be it's a precarious point to be that's why we feel this sense of instability that's why lots of people not just Christians feel a sense of instability they feel a sense of a loss of identity that's why people vote to get out of transnational institutions because they want to recover a sense of their identity even though they're not quite sure what it is this radical uprooting is all around us so culture is what we do with God's creation. And this is what our first parents, when we look at the scope of the gospel throughout our history, this is what our first parents were set in the garden to do as royal priests in God's cosmic temple. You know, the creation, a lot of the imagery in creation is of a temple in which our first parents are set to serve as priests. To subdue and develop everything and and turn God's creation into a God-glorifying culture. Cultivating everything in terms of his will and his purpose as an act of worship. And that command has never been rescinded. It was the theologian Herman Babink who puts it this way. He says, and I quote, Genesis 1.26 teaches us that God had a purpose in creating man in his image. Namely, that man should have dominion. If now we comprehend the force of this subduing, this dominion under the term culture, we can say that culture in its broadest sense is the purpose for which God created man after his image. So you were created for the purpose of cultivating your life and everything in your sphere of influence in terms of the will and purpose of God for his glory and in that to find your highest joy. When I was coming over on the plane, as well as reading through some of my lectures for today, I watched a, a movie called um, Passengers. Anybody seen Passengers yet? No? Things always come here slightly later than North America, so I'm slightly ahead. Passengers is a film about uh, two people. It's a science fiction movie. Two people who are on their way to, um, actually it's not about two people, it's about 5,000 people who are on their way on a ship to colonize another part of space. But uh, it's, a, it's a journey of about 90 years, so they're in stasis, yeah, science fiction. They're in, they're in stasis, they're in some kind of sleep, but unfortunately one of them, there's a malfunction and one of them wakes up about 60 years too early, or it might have been 90 years, I can't remember, it wasn't that good a film. Um, they woke up too early. They're totally alone. And they go through this, this, this internal struggle as to whether they should wake somebody else up and after a year they decide to wake somebody else up because they can't bear the loneliness anymore and what's most interesting about the film is that this whole idea of being alone on a tin can huge tin can and luxurious tin can though it was is that unless a person can have exercise some kind of create not only have fellowship but exercise some kind of creative dominion their life has no meaning they want to kill themselves You know, we were created to be in fellowship with God and to do something. In terms of the reign of Christ, to rule, to have dominion, to cultivate, to transform things. That's what it means to be a human being. So, making culture is inescapable for all of God's image bearers. It's an expression of our worship. And we will turn the visible and invisible materials of creation into culture either as covenant keepers or as covenant breakers, since we are either disobedient or obedient as we stand in relationship to God. Now, that's the antithesis that the Apostle Paul gives us in Romans 1. He actually tells us there are only two forms of worship and therefore only two forms of culture. Now, of course, of those two forms, there are subcategories, but there are basically only two types. In Romans 1, Paul says there is the worship of the creator, and then there is the worship of creation. Those are the two religions. And Paul points out that they produce two types of different culture. And so he says that men exchange the truth about God for the lie. What's the lie? Uh, He doesn't say a lie there, actually, if your translation says that. It's the lie for the lie. What's the lie? Well, it's the original lie. You will be as gods. Knowing or determining for yourself good and evil, right from wrong, truth from falsehood. You can have an independent area of creation. You can define reality for yourself. You can work in cross purposes to God and succeed. That's the lie. So Paul says, they exchanged the truth about God for the lie and they worshipped and served the creature, some aspects of creation, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And so... He then says that they exchanged, having exchanged the image of the uh, incorruptible God for corruptible things, they began to worship and serve anything and everything. And then he talks about a sexual exchange, interestingly enough, which we haven't got time to talk about in detail, where then men and and women begin begin to misuse even one another in terms of the distinctions God has made. You see, we live in a culture now which wants to Separate what God has joined and join what God has separated. We want to separate what God has joined and join what God has separated. That's the, that's the antithetical nature of our rebellion. Creation, you see, is God's thesis. You know what a thesis is? If you haven't done one at school already. It's God's fundamental pattern, order, structure. If you like, it's God's argument, it's God's law. That's the thesis, the creation thesis. Rebels work in terms of an anti-thesis. They work against God's creation, order, and structure, and pattern, and norm. By exchanging the truth about God for the lie. Worshipping and serving something created, rather than the creator. These are mutually exclusive. Now, the worship of creation, the Bible has a word for it. What's the word for the worship of something created? Idolatry. To worship anything other than the living God is idolatry. And scripture says that that always leads to cultural decay. So if you look at the history of Israel, and you consider the nation of Israel, the thing you see them falling into idolatry, you see them falling into social and cultural decay, into exile and so on. But this does mean, of course, that since worship foundationally to culture means we worship the living God or some creature there's no such thing as a neutral culture in fact there's no activity in culture that can ever be neutral you can't ever cultivate any aspect of your life in a neutral fashion now you will say well don't Christians and humanists do similar things don't we pursue the same cultural tasks well we certainly do because human beings are homo-religiosus. They are, we, we all are quorum Deo, we live before the face of God, and we are religious beings. We cannot help but pursue these different cultural activities. We we all get married and build families, for example. We establish educational institutions, we'll do fine art, we'll make films, we'll write music, we'll do do the gardening. But the structure of those things, the structure, though the structure remains the same, I can use the same spade as a non-believer. I use the same musical notes as a non-believer when I play the piano or play the guitar. And though that structure remains the same, the direction of everything is different. The direction of everything is different. The legal structure of my marriage might be the same as my non-believing neighbor, but the direction of my marriage is different. The structure of something concerns God's created laws and ordained pattern that pertain to it. Not just God's laws for gravity, for example, but God's word for the family and the church and the state. Whereas the direction of these things concerns the religious orientation that they have. Now, there's many structures in God's creation, lots of different structures, but there are only two directions. That makes it actually quite simple. There's only two directions. We're either oriented towards God or towards idolatry in our marriage, in our family, in church, in state, in art, in science, in every other sphere. We seek to serve and glorify God in terms of his norm in each area of our lives, or we will live in an apostate direction where we have no central place for God and his Revelation. This distinction between structure and direction is very important because we recognize the fall and the problem of sin and its effect on all human activities and on all human institutions. Take marriage as an example. The structure of marriage today is exactly the same as it was at creation. God hasn't changed his plan for marriage. It doesn't matter what David Cameron says or Theresa May. God's plan for marriage, his norm for marriage is not changed. So the marriage norm is the same, but the hearts of those in a marriage relationship, when unregenerate, is turned in an apostate direction. Likewise, the challenge of political life. It's not that God's ordained structure of the state as a covenantal institution is broken, but that many of those involved in politics have hearts and thereby convictions and ideologies hostile to God's word. So when people say, for example, my marriage failed, my marriage failed. We know that it wasn't marriage that failed, right? But it was one or more of the parties involved who, for whatever reason, for a variety of reasons, the relationship breaks down because of our sins. In the same way, with respect to failed states, we don't conclude, therefore, that, ah, right, get dispensed with the idea of the state because God's norm of the state has totally failed. No, we recognize that, again, because of sin, the socio-political challenge, the, uh, the, the, the issues with respect to the state, socially or culturally, politically, are fundamentally at root religious, moral challenges centered in the heart of man. Out of the heart spring the issues of life, Scripture says. The heart is the core, the root, the center of the human person. It's not just where your emotions are. It's not just where your feelings are, the heart is the root of the human person, out of the heart, the direction of our hearts bring all the issues of life. So we are either regenerate, transformed by the grace of God, and out of that heart transformation, everything that we do and who we are begins to change, or we're unregenerate, and the direction of our lives is not oriented towards God and his word. Let me wrap this up with this. If that is true, if that's what culture is and if that's what the gospel is, then the Christian gospel, the good news of Christ, is a particular vision of culture. It involves a particular vision of culture. The gospel isn't just about you going to heaven, you having a ticket to heaven, you getting on the glory train, and so on. No, the gospel involves... The transformation of the heart and every aspect of life in terms of the worship of the living God through Jesus Christ. So when we enthrone Jesus as Lord, as the one who reigns over heart, mind, soul and strength of every believer, it must inescapably form a new culture. That's an inescapable deduction. Let me put it to you this way. If culture, if culture is the public expression Of the worship of a people. And the gospel restores us to true worship. Then the gospel restores us to true culture. Which is the kingdom of God. I'll say that again. If culture is the public expression of the worship of a people. Which I've argued. I think that's a no brainer as we say. If that is the case, and the gospel restores us to true worship, then the gospel restores us to true culture, which is the kingdom of God. You and I were not made to live dissonant, fragmented, confused, compartmentalized lives, but to have actually an integral life that is a harmony in all of its aspects, to worship and glorify God and have dominion in all things, in terms of the Lordship of Christ and our restoration of our calling to worship and to serve, beginning with the heart, this radical change in the core of our being and then touching everything else in all creation. I'm going to stick to time uh, so that we can have proper breaks and I promise you I'm going to leave a good section for questions at the end of our next session. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.